One of the most difficult tasks in biology is data and statistics. It is hard to look at those numbers. It's hard to quantify what you're looking at and then be able to answer questions when it comes to what numbers you reach. In pest management, we often find that data becomes important, especially if we're monitoring. And monitoring is very important to an integrated pest management. It's the brains of your program. My name is Sylvia Kenmere, and it's another episode of ACACE. So when you look at the domains for the different sections you will be asked for ACE, one of them is monitoring. And monitoring represents about 18 questions on your exam. Now, chapter four, if you're following along in the IPM for the urban professional, is about nine pages long. And so where will they get those questions for? Well, a lot of them will certainly will be from this section, but some of them will be very specific to pests that have very important monitoring tools associated with making IPM plants. In particular, you'll be looking at stored product pests, flies, and bed bugs, because we definitely use uh, monitoring devices for all three of those pests. So one of the things you have to do is quantify your inspection, and that's done with monitoring. And it's not as simple as saying, yes, you have cockroaches. If you think about it, and the example this book uses, which I really like, is that you could put out 20 glue traps in a kitchen, and if you catch one cockroach, that's one, you know, we got one cockroach. If you set out those same 20 traps and you catch 200 cockroaches, again, you can't just tell the customer they have roaches, right? Both of them have roaches, but obviously one is worse than the other. And so the plans are going to be different. And so monitoring tells you what your levels of infestation are, and then from there, you're able to develop a plan. And so the first thing, we have some definitions that we have to talk about when we're talking about monitoring. So the first is that a sample, okay, whatever it is, if you're collecting a glue board that has a sample or you're collecting an actual insect, it's a one-time observation of a pest sign or presence. It's usually recorded on a pest control report. When you monitor, it occurs when inspections are made and recorded over time. So you don't monitor once, you do this over time. And it allows for trend analysis, okay, because that's one thing it tells us, but it also tells us program evaluation. How are we doing? And so that's one of the things that monitoring can do for you. Now, one thing that I want to take a moment to talk about is that the monitoring section will likely have some kind of graph. We're dealing with numbers and we're dealing with time. And so often the way that we look at these numbers is through a grafting, you know, a graph. And we're going to see that usually on the bottom axis is going to have the months. And then the vertical axis is going to have our counts of pests. And you can take, you know, let's say an account has cockroaches and perhaps they have flies and let's say they have stored product pests. Let's say they have all three. You could actually graph all three of those 
on a graph and show trend lines for each different past. And yes, some of them might be flat, some of them might have peaks and valleys, but you can look at that and it can actually tell your customer how you're doing or it can point out seasonality. It can point out um, a lot of things, how your control is doing. So um, make sure that you look at a graph and that you're comfortable with looking at a graph because you'll likely have at least one graph on your exam, okay? That's gonna be something that catches, you know, we tell you there's no pictures, there's no pictures, and then you see a graph and you go, they told me there was no pictures, okay? So um, some of the things, again, a graph can tell you is, you know, if especially uh, the ACE manual actually has one that's showing forward flies and house flies, you know, and looking at the months, when, what month did you see improvement? Uh, you know, what season are problems for house flies? What season are problems for forward flies? How effective was the baiting and sanitation efforts in June and, you know, flat lines? So these are the types of questions that can be asked when you see a graft. So look at the graph first, see what it's telling you, then look at the questions and answer the questions. When we are monitoring, typically we use traps, okay? Because we're doing this over time and we're not going there every day. So usually we use traps and there's a few different types of traps. So the first thing we're gonna do when we talk about a trap is we're going to define the trap as either a passive trap or an active trap. A passive trap collects insects without a lure. Okay, this is where you use a glue board, maybe, you know, a little, and you put it in the corner and you catch a mouse or you catch cockroaches. There's nothing there drawing the insect or rodent to the trap. They're kept getting stuck in there because of their biology, because they like those uh, corners or they like those structural guidelines and they happen to fall into it, okay? A active trap or an active trap uses an attractant to draw the pest into the trap. And so this could be with light, this could be with pheromones, this could be with scents that are attracting them. So an active trap actually draws them in, okay? And so it's actually, they wouldn't have found it without the, without the pheromone, okay? And that's what an active trap is. Other types of traps now we're moving beyond. They can You can classify every single one of the traps that we're going to talk about as a passive or an active trap. You have light traps. Again, they use light to attract the insects to uh, with the wavelengths. You have pheromone traps. They usually use some kind of insect hormone, usually a sex attractant, uh, usually a female attractant, and then the males all come to the trap, okay? And so that's a pheromone trap. You may use a pitfall trap. And so we really didn't know what these were in the pest control market until bed bugs. Uh, they're used very commonly in ag, but for pest control, this would be something like the climb ups where they can, you know, they fall in, they can't get out. It's like a pitfall. And then when we use any kinds of sticky traps, usually we're using some kind of glue or adhesive uh, to trap the insects on the card so that they don't go anywhere, right? And we can use that. And so those are the different types of traps, or we would call them sampling and monitoring tools. So make sure you're familiar with them. Make sure that you um, are comfortable with all the definitions. Now, there is a word that they use in the text that I wanna make sure that you're familiar with, and this is the word called 
thigmotaxis, okay? Thigmotaxis. And that is where pests navigate via touch, okay? And so they do this rather than sight or smell. And generally speaking, when we talk about thigmotaxis, this is where we're taking those glue boards that I mentioned, you're putting them in the corners, you're putting them along the walls, you're depending on the fact that they are going to, they like to touch. Maybe it's the antennae that's gonna touch, maybe it's the vibrissi that's gonna touch, but they're touching that surface and then they're gonna happen to get into that, into that glue trap. So that's something that is a bolded word, so make sure you're familiar with thigmotaxis. Now, there are some general guidelines when you're using sticky traps, okay? And so I'm gonna cover a few of them. Uh, we, oh, we like to put them in the, potentially the entrance points, you know, usually maybe in a customer, we have them right there at the uh, entrance of the garage, you know, the sides of the garage, cause something's gonna crawl in, they're gonna follow those structural guidelines and they're gonna get stuck in the trap. Uh, you wanna make sure that you assign numbers or color codes so that, again, it's easier to record the data, especially if you pick up the traps and you replace them with clean traps so you know where you got them all. Make sure that in food storage areas, traps are underneath shelves and at different heights, about 10 feet apart. For cockroaches, uh, you know, we have to kind of remember cockroaches kind of move all over. So you would do more of a 3D monitoring. So you kind of think up high, maybe it's above a, a you know refrigerator, maybe it's up in the high cabinets, maybe it's down low. And so kind of think about all, you know, all around when you're doing cockroaches. And then, you know, again, make sure that you remove old traps because the glue will sometimes get dusty and it could actually become a harborage site for insects because once the glue's not sticky anymore, they can actually start living in there. So that's important. Uh, then, you know, we have also uh, for flying insects, you know, there, you can use uh, glue traps for that. There are these hanging triangle traps that you can use. Again, you would assign numbers, very popular for uh, stored product pests. And so those are something you can do. And again, you wanna make sure that if there's food prep areas that you are aware of where you can and can put traps, okay? Especially glue traps, all right, very important. If you're using a pheromone when you're traps, there are specific types of pheromones. And so um, a pheromone is a substance that uh, is used to communicate and insects produce these hormones and they use them to communicate or influence the behavior of insects of the same species, okay? And that's a pheromone. And there are um, ones that we tend to use in pest control are sex pheromones. Uh, there are some aggregation pheromones, but usually the insects actually put that out. So if you think about um, cockroaches where you've seen that spotting or those fecal focal points, and that's, you know, there's pheromones in there letting other cockroaches know this is a good place to live. And so, you know, if the, you catch enough cockroaches on a glue trap, those pheromones will actually help you attract them to those traps. And then there's also 
trailing pheromones out there. Uh, there's been a couple of them, but I don't think they've really made the pest control market. I know they've discovered them, but especially for ants, but they really haven't commercialized them yet or been able to put them in a way that we're able to use them. Uh, but make sure you're familiar with uh, what a pheromone is and that for pest control, we're using likely the sex uh, pheromones when it comes to uh, stored product pests, okay, really important. And then with light traps, there is a lot of information when it comes to light traps. And so make sure that you're very comfortable on where to place them. And so we want to know, we want, first thing you want to know is that they can detect the light from 25 feet away, that they can, that's for flies, for moths, they can detect, they can detect the light a hundred feet away. And, you know, there's other insects that can get caught in there. All right. So sometimes you catch other things. Uh, but in general, when it comes to uh, those traps, you know, they have a specific uh, height that you have to place them. And so, uh, you know, generally it's four to six feet above the floor. They should be inspected regularly. Uh, as far as bulbs go, you have to replace them at least once a year. And then there's some other specific things when it comes to near food prep surfaces, near doors. And so my suggestion would be is if you haven't used light traps before, um, Pest West has a lot of really great information on their website. So I would consider looking at Pest West or if you guys are using another brand, just understand how they work. Okay, that would be really helpful uh, for you. And then again, we only use light traps indoors. That might sound kind of kooky, but I have seen a picture um, of, of, of a light trap outside and that can just be a nightmare. And then other traps that you should be familiar with, uh, there's something called a jar trap. So that you, when you hear it like that, you're like, I've probably never seen that before. But you have, it's just not quite a jar. Think of the yellow jacket traps where you have those yellow cylindrical tubes that are hanging and they're collecting yellow jackets where they can crawl in and there's an attractant in there. Sometimes it's some kind of sweet syrup and you know they, they can't get back out. Uh, there's some fly ones where they just smell god awful, but those fly bags that you can put out where they fly in and they can't get out. So that's what a jar trap would be. And then we also, for, for rodent management, we use snap traps or for animals, we use live animal traps. And then, you know, there's also use of glue boards. And so, you know, when we're using those kinds of traps, it's the same kind of principle with rodents, right? We're trying to place those traps in known paths. Um, you know, we the, try and anchor those or tether them down. And it actually will help, you know, with the animal being able to not flop around and get out of the trap. You want to check them frequently, um, you know, try and, and you pre-bait, then bait, you know, those are all things in there. And again, uh, because there are vectors that, uh, you know, insects like fleas and lice and mites that are on vertebrates and also birds, that's why it's important to be familiar with uh, with, with the vertebrate. I know this is an entomology exam where you're supposed to be looking at insects. Uh, however, because there's insects that are on these pests that are medically important, uh, that's why you have to be familiar with at least the commensal rodents and the very common birds. Uh, there's DNA tests out there. And so with the DNA tests, 
those are tests that can be used for surfaces if they've had bed bugs on there. Um, they can you can submit that and they can tell you yes there's bed bug presence there or no there's not. Um, where that's helpful is in you know with somebody who might be uh, suffering from Ekbon syndrome or delusionary parasitosis where they think they're getting bit by something but they're not, and so um, that test can help you um, you know monitor surfaces because we're still talking about monitoring. We're talking about how we're going to collect that data. Uh, there's tracking powder. Now, I'm not talking about the tracking powder that actually has a toxicant. I'm talking about tracking powder like talcum where you're trying to see if something is crossing that surface. And so that's something that can be used. That's visual evidence. And sometimes prints in, you know, in the ground that can be used as visual evidence. Uh, but you know, those are the tools that you would come in contact with. Now, once you have all of those traps and tools that you're using, now you have to interpret the results, right? You've been monitoring and now you have to interpret the results. And you know, again, now we have to analyze it a little bit further. So now we're not talking about just cockroaches, but did you catch nymphs? Did you catch males? Did you catch females? Is it all adults? Is it all nymphs? Because all of that will tell you differences in the population. If you have large numbers of cockroaches nymphs and very few adults, you know, it might indicate a large and growing population because you have, you know, juveniles. If you're only catching adults, it might tell you that the population's declining because where's all the nymphs? Where's the future generation? So it's not just looking at your tools and saying, well, I have cockroaches. It's specifically what kinds of cockroaches because all of this is going to tell you. Also, what direction they are in, right? If they're all to the right, well, your population is somewhere to the right. If it's all to the left, well, then it's all to, you know, it's to the left. So our, our tools tell us quite a bit. And so we have to have that time to be able to anal and, you know, analyze it. Very important. Now we have all those results. Now we talk about thresholds, right? Action thresholds. And so what is an action threshold? And an action threshold are the boundaries between tolerable and intolerable pest levels. Each pest in sight will have its own threshold and may be multiple thresholds for any pest, right? It just depends. And so the first rule of thumb with the threshold is that there is no such thing as a threshold of zero. That means you have no pest and you therefore would not have any integrated pest management program there. You wouldn't be necessarily doing anything. So the threshold which prompts you to do something has to be at least one, okay? And then dependent on, you know, there you may have different levels. You may have a high, medium, and low threshold. And each one of those levels of pest is going to be associated with a program. And so the example that they use here, which I find helpful, is that you would look at something like cockroaches. And so a level one response may be, if you have one cockroach per trap, 
You may increase your inspection frequency, right? Because they have at least a cockroach, so that's uh, a problem. And you may conduct informal training with the kitchen staff. Maybe they left the door open and the American cockroach just happened to come in. Uh, but, but you have something, and so you got to do something about it. A level two response may be one to five cockroaches on your traps. Well, now we have a little bit more going on. So maybe we are going to put out some roach bait. Maybe that's what we're going to do. And then level three response, let's say you have greater than five cockroaches per trap. Well, now we're probably going to have to do a little bit more. So perhaps we might do not only in addition to the baiting, but we might do crack and crevice treatments. We may de-clean the kitchen equipment. We may have to train the staff more. We might have to put door sweeps if there are American cockroaches coming in whatever it's going to be. So this is an example of how you would take those thresholds that you already decided and have presented to your customer and then and you'll go to action depending on what you find when you're doing your monitoring. And so um, you know, that's really what a threshold will do. Now, um, last but not least, thresholds can be varied by location. So let's say you have a school campus. Let's say you have fire ants. What you do in the field is going sports field is going to be very different than the building perimeter or even the ants inside. And so that's how each threshold might be different and each action might be different. And so thresholds can be really helpful. Who determines them? You know, there's health and safety thresholds, especially if it's a health pest or you know safety risk that's something that will set one kind of standard or one threshold there's legal thresholds out there local health departments have standards especially for like uh, rodents or for bed bugs and so that could be something that's um, you know being set for you there could be economic thresholds where a dollar amount could be placed on the damage by different pests. So think stored product pests, think termites, that kind of thing. Um, it's more less common in structural pest control, but those are two examples that I can think of. And then last but not least, the more difficult one is a personal tolerance threshold, right? That's set in consultation with your customer. It's gonna vary from account to account, customer to customer, but those are where the thresholds are. And, you know, of course, we want to review those ahead of time. But thinking about those and having your plan when you present to your customer is one of the things that differentiates somebody who's an associate certified entomologist and everyone else. And that's it for monitoring. So don't forget 18 questions. Go to your key pests, especially flies and store product pests, and look at how you would monitor. Cockroach is another one. And then we'll take a look at uh, some of the occasional invaders next time.